Christmas bells are ringing, Christmas bells are ringing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Geeks Crossing. I've made a lot of episodes for Geeks Crossing over the years. Well, over the year and a half. At the time of this recording, I've got more than 30 solo episodes out for this podcast where I talk about whatever I please in a variety of scripted, unscripted, and semi-scripted formats. I've ranked concepts from the disgustingness of bugs to the fighting capability of Looney Tunes characters. I've hypothesized my own Pokemon games. I've taken journeys through SpongeBob video games, object shows, and obscure American founding fathers, just to name a few. Needless to say, there's been a lot of content, and I'm proud of it since it's all mine. Sometimes based on extensive and interesting research, and sometimes based on my own spur-of-the-moment opinions. But it hasn't all been perfect. Obviously, some of my earlier episodes don't have the same audio quality that has been expected since at least the start of our second season, due to my lack of equipment and our minimal editing at the time, especially for the really early ones. But sometimes the episodes suffer due to my own writing shortcomings. For a while, I thought of my old Minecraft Mob Top 10 from Summer 2020, just because I feel like it's a little too robotic for my liking, listening back. But the real episode I feel the need to discuss today is my worst of Broadway Top 10. Bottom 10, whatever. As a whole, I'm pretty proud of that episode, and the thinking and writing I did for it. I think I particularly nail my feelings towards Spring Awakening, All Shook Up, Gypsy, The Prom, most of the shows on the list. If I were to do it over again, I might be a little less harsh on Legally Blonde and Wicked and maybe move them back a space or two. I'd also be sure to include Chicago, a musical I really dislike, but which I totally blanked out on while writing the script. But one other facet I would have to change would be my description of Rent. I think my description of Rent in my worst Broadway shows list is probably the writing I'm least proud of for this podcast. I don't think it's abysmal or anything, but it definitely could have been done better. I wrote the script and recorded in early June 2021, and then a few weeks later I actually had to go see a production of Rent with my brother performing. While watching, I realized that my description of the show had been a little off and definitely poorly explained. Because don't get me wrong. I don't like the show. It would still garner a spot on a list of my least favorite Broadway shows, even if I were to remake that list today, almost half a year later. But after I left the theater with my brother and the rest of my family, I realized how wrong I had been in my explanation of why. That said, I didn't want to re-record and have Eric re-edit the whole episode, so I kept my mouth shut. Not anymore. Within a week of that episode's release, I had friends who loved theater coming up to me and expressing their frustration with my coverage of Rent. And that's fair. Again, go listen to my Worst of Broadway episode if you haven't. I'm still in complete agreement with 90% of what I said and how I said it. I has more than 90% if you include the honorable mentions. But consider this episode of Renaissance Matt a sort of epilogue, a walkthrough behind the history of Rent, the story's plot, and a better explanation of my intense disagreement with its philosophy, lessons, and writing. And before you say, but isn't Renaissance Matt supposed to be more informative than opinion-based? No, not really. This miniseries has seen me insult quite a few Muppets projects and Spongebob video games, among other things. I guess it's been more informative as of late, with wholesome and frank conversations about the rise and fall of Discovery Kids and the birth of Disney World, but this isn't a series where I stray from my thoughts. So let's dive in and find out why exactly this show grinds my gears so much. I guess this episode could also be considered a sort of sarcastic celebration of Rent's 25th anniversary, even if I'm off by quite a few months. I got the year right, isn't that what matters? 1996 may have been when Rent premiered on Broadway, but the show goes back further than that, to the early 90s. The early 1890s, that is. Operating out of Italy, Giacomo Puccini was preparing to make a name for himself with the first of several great operas. (laughs) I just noticed while writing the script. Opera 
operating operate opera uh, that wasn't supposed to be a pun, but I'm going to roll with it. Anyway, Puccini was descended from a long line of Italian musicians and composers and was determined to make a name for himself with his own operas. Opera is actually the mother of musical theater, and many of the hoity-toity who have more sophisticated tastes than I do might still argue that opera is a cut above. I mean, operas are still regularly performed around the world and maintain a loyal following, but singers acting out roles with a semblance of a set and plot you can thank the opera, and Puccini would go down in history as one of the best, eventually producing such hits as Tosca, Madama Butterfly, and Turandot in the early 1900s. Sorry if I butchered any of those. His first smash hit, and arguably his most enduring success, came at the end of the 1800s with La Boheme. La Boheme is a word describing a bohemian lifestyle, and if you don't know what that is, it's basically the root of my problems with Rent, the ones I tried to explain in the Worst of Broadway episode. There's a lot of different ways to define bohemianism. The American College Dictionary defines a bohemian as a person with artistic or intellectual tendencies who lives and acts with no regard for conventional rules of behavior. Basically, bohemian culture is the culture lived and celebrated, in theories, by poor liberals. Liberal in the traditional definition, not in terms of modern American politics, though the latter would eventually be true too. Young people without a foothold in power or status would live like the poor, either because they were poor or because they idolized the poor lifestyle. They would experiment with all sorts of pursuits, usually avant-garde art, music, language, and eventually even sexual deviance. For any German listeners, the concept of bohemianism did not actually originate out of Bohemia. Rather, when the Gypsy people first arrived in France, many of the French upper class noted that they had come from Germany and incorrectly assumed that the clothing, culture, and customs of the poorer Gypsy people was from Bohemia, and the name stuck. Puccini got the inspiration for La Boheme from an 1851 book by the French novelist Henry Merger titled Scenes de la Vie de Boheme, or Scenes of the Bohemian Life. Puccini's opera follows various members of the Italian lower class, including a poet, a painter, a seamstress, a singer, and a philosopher, among others. The story follows two roommates, Marcello and Rodolfo, who struggle with poverty as their line of work, painting and poetry, isn't exactly in high demand in 1830s Paris. The story follows Rodolfo's love of a seamstress named Mimi, another bohemian like himself, while dealing with the quarrels of other friends Colleen, the philosopher, Schnanard, the musician, Musetta, the singer, and Marcello's on-and-off girlfriend, and Alcindoro, the government official, and Musetta's new flame, who only appears briefly, as well as the demands of Benoit, the landlord. The show was a smash hit and remains one of the most popular operas of all time. Fans adored a deep, sympathetic look into the lives of the poor, people who struggled to get by from following their dreams, with nobody around to help them. It was a moving tale of love and perseverance, even if it has a sad ending, spoiler alert for the 125-year-old opera, with the death of Mimi from some disease hinted to be tuberculosis, Rodolfo crying over her corpse as the rest of the cast looked on. The real tragedy was that Mimi had become wed with a wealthy suitor, but he could not help her either. She left him, never having stopped loving Rodolfo, and reunited with him right before her death. I know this all seems irrelevant, like I'm just gushing over an opera, but I promise it will be important for later. Like I said, La Boheme went on to be one of the most famous and beloved Western operas ever written, and was put on in various theaters worldwide for over a hundred years. During this time, the Bohemian lifestyle continued to evolve in Europe and made its way to the growing United States. Over the course of the 20th century, bohemianism inspired multiple counter-cultural movements in America, including the flappers of the 1920s, beatniks in the 1940s and 50s, and the hippies of the 1960s and 70s. All of these people, especially the beatniks and hippies, lived bohemian lifestyles, dressing immodestly and uncaringly for artistic reasons, and having little care of their finances, either splurging their money or begging to get by, sometimes both. Obviously, not all poor people were bohemians, 
But poverty was a huge part of Bohemian culture, as money was considered an attachment to earthly possessions, and thus uncouth. This generation of American counterculture was the one Jonathan Larson grew up in. Born in 1960, Larson loved music from an early age, particularly the trendy musicians of his age like Billy Joel, Elton John, and the Beatles. A New Yorker from birth, Larson later attended Adelphi University, my own alma mater. I knew this before researching, because the school is enormously proud of this fact, seeing as... Other than Flava Flav, he's pretty much our most famous alumni. So they slapped Jonathan Larson's name everywhere, especially in the Performing Arts Building, as you could probably imagine. Larson met Stephen Sondheim, the legendary Broadway composer I mentioned in my Best of Broadway list, and who passed away very recently at the time of this recording. Inspired to enter the world of theater, Larson started writing plays and musicals while attending Adelphi. The first was, oh boy, uh, Sacrimorolinority, later renamed Saved, an immoral musical on the moral majority, written in 1981 with friend and fellow student David Armstrong, and debuted that same year at Adelphi, and a year later in a small theater in New York. I have no idea what this musical is about, because despite googling it and checking source after source, the only information I could find on it was that it won a writing award. Ironic, considering it seems to have been completely lost to history 40 years after it was written, meaning whatever was seen as worthy of this award is more or less undiscoverable to the public at large. After Saved, Larson graduated from Adelphi and eventually settled in Soho, a district in urban Manhattan, short for south of Houston Street, where he scraped by making ends meet, chasing a dream of being a Broadway composer. His first musical out of college was called Superbia, and it was to be Larson's magnum opus. Written between 1983 and 1990, Superbia, the Latin word for pride, was an epic rock musical loosely following the events of George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984. Unfortunately for Larson, the Orwell estate did not give him permission to put on this musical, so aside from a few practice performances, and in spite of some early production awards, Superbia would never be produced. A frustrated Larson expressed his angst at not being able to complete his dream show in an autobiographical rock musical, which went by many names throughout production. First, 3090, after the fact that Larson was turning 30 in 1990 and was worried about his lack of accomplishments. Then, Boho Days, shortened from Bohemian and referencing Larson's starving artist New Yorker lifestyle, until finally setting on Tick Tick Boom. If you've heard of this title, chances are it's from the Netflix adaptation that came out only a few weeks ago at the time of this recording, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. I haven't seen it, but if you're curious about the life of Jonathan Larson, this is a full musical about his struggles with getting Superbia produced. And I think the movie delves more into his life after the early 90s. Speaking of the early 90s, that's when this show made it to Off-Broadway. Okay, theater terminology is really weird, but for those of you who don't know, Off-Broadway is when a show premieres and performs in a theater in New York that isn't one of the 41 official Broadway theaters that fit 500-plus people. Off-Broadway shows are smaller, tickets are cheaper, and they generally make less money, but if they're really successful, they can get upgraded to a true Broadway theater with bigger, more accommodating seating and inflated ticket prices. This will be relevant later, but for now, just know that Larson was spending the early 90s directing, writing, and starring as himself in Tick, Tick, Boom. But he had another project brewing, one that would change his legacy and musical theater forever. In 1988, a man called Billy Aronson had an idea. A playwright by trade, having found about as much success as Larson, Aronson wanted to produce a play or musical based on Puccini's great opera La Boheme, but instead of 19th century Italy, it should be set in the late 20th century New York. When Larson heard of the idea, he fell in love with it. Aronson hadn't done much with the concept, and so Larson asked if he could use it and write an entire musical based around the premise. Aronson said, sure, but he wanted to share in the proceeds the show made if it ever got to Broadway, as well as getting credit for the idea. 
Larson agreed to these simple terms and immediately got to work. While starring in Tick Tick Boom and waiting tables at a diner to get by, Larson leapt into the design and production of Rent. He took to the original source material, La Boheme, and updated and modernized many elements, in addition to the setting, such as the occupations. For example, Marcello, the aspiring painter, became Mark, the aspiring filmmaker, and Rodolfo, the aspiring poet, became Roger, the aspiring rock star. Disease became a much bigger theme. Whereas in La Boheme, only one person, Mimi, suffered from tuberculosis, Larson decided that in Rent, multiple people, a solid chunk of the main cast, suffered from AIDS during a time where the HIV pandemic and AIDS crisis was running rampant, particularly in New York City. As for the location, since Manhattan is a big place, Larson wanted to hone in on the East Village by Alphabet City, down the street from where he lived at the time. His goals were to set the show amidst, and I quote, Poverty, homelessness, spunky gay life, drag queens, and punk. I'll refrain from any other details about Rent for now, since that stuff will come when I'm discussing why I don't like the show. For now, just know that Larson worked tirelessly on this show, especially the music, which was completely new. There are snippets referenced from La Boheme, but nothing more than that. Aronson remained involved, helping write most of the songs Santa Fe and I Should Tell You. When Larson settled on a name, Rent, Aronson wasn't thrilled, but... He got the double meaning when Larson explained. Not only would the main character struggle to pay rent, but rent also means a divide, a gap, a tear, which Aronson thought fit the musical perfectly. And here's a fun fact for you. After rent, Aronson would go on to write episodes of Courage the Cowardly Dog, Codename Kids Next Door, Wonder Pets, and the Arthur spinoff Postcards from Buster. Small world, I guess. That's really weird. Larson did most of the work, however, especially after he pretty much bought Aronson out of the project. With so many ideas, including hundreds of songs that had to be narrowed down, the opening reading for Rent, which took place in 1993, was fairly messy. But eventually, the musical numbers and plot were shortened to acceptable levels, and Rent was headed to an off-Broadway theater. But in a terrible tragedy, one that proves that truth is stranger than fiction, Jonathan Larson died suddenly, the very morning of Rent's first off-Broadway show, on January 25th, 1996. He had been suffering from Marfan syndrome, a rare genetic disorder that weakens ligaments in the body and caused an aorta rupture in Larson's heart. This issue had never been diagnosed, and when Larson went to the doctor complaining of dizziness and chest pains a few weeks earlier, the doctors found nothing wrong with him, even after an x-ray. Due to his lack of serious medical history, they shrugged it off as stress from spending too much time on rent. The untimely death of Larson, combined with the incredible coincidence that Rent would be opening 100 years after the opening of Puccini's La Boheme, excited and intrigued theatergoers who went to see Rent in droves. Larson's parents gave their blessing for the show to continue, and from the first performance, the show was an absolute smash hit. It sold out every single performance in its off-Broadway theater and moved to Broadway by April, entering a theater in the middle of renovation just because it had more seating available. The show was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, and Larson posthumously won three of them, including Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, and Best Original Score. Larson's hours upon hours poured into the script were seemingly vindicated. Rent stayed on Broadway from 1996 to 2008, making it one of the longest-running shows on Broadway. Only three years after it closed, it was revived off-Broadway. The show got a movie, directed by Harry Potter legend Chris Columbus, and released in 2005 with almost all the original Broadway cast. Rent has gone on to perform in multiple different countries, including Cuba, where it was the first Broadway musical to open since diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Cuba ceased in 1959. It's also inspired a whole slew of other Broadway creators. Lin-Manuel Miranda has gone on record saying Rent was the show that inspired him to get into theater, leading the way for In the Heights and Hamilton. And although this wasn't explicitly mentioned, there's no doubt in my mind that other shows directed towards edgy young people, 
Spring Awakening is the big one that comes to mind, were probably at least hoping to cash in on the success of Rent. Larson had written other musicals and other music, actually contributing some music to Sesame Street, among some other children's projects, but Rent would truly be his magnum opus. To this day, 25 years, and more than 25 years actually, since it's opened, it remains one of Broadway's biggest success stories. And I still don't like it. Let's get into the show itself, specifically my arguments from last time I voiced my complaints about Rent, whether those complaints still stand up, and any other issues I have with the show. What separates Rent from La Boheme isn't just the characters' names and the setting. It's not like Rent is a true modern version of La Boheme. It just kind of takes the overall plot of the opera and adds a bunch of new stuff. The original plot of La Boheme focuses on two men, two women. Marcello, Rodolfo, Rodolfo's girlfriend Mimi, and Marcello's on-and-off girlfriend Musada. But in Rent, the focus is primarily Roger, with the others as sort of side characters. Mark and Maureen, inspired by Marcello and Masada, have about one song referencing the fact that they were once lovers, but by 15 minutes into the show, the point is glossed over completely. None of this is to say that Rent can't be allowed to do its own thing. Obviously, the whole thing was just La Boheme with everyone dressed in 20th century clothing instead of 19th century clothing. That would have its own issues. But with Rent being only kind of a half adaptation of La Boheme, it brings new issues. Mark and Maureen's big important relationship from the past isn't really important after the middle of Act 1, and that's to Rent's discredit, not just being unfaithful to La Boheme. I guess this is as good a place as any to talk about the characters. One of my complaints last time around was that the characters don't actually do much of anything. I guess I kind of stand by that, though it's not as serious an issue as I had initially thought. All of Act 1 takes place within the span of about a day, with the characters setting up for Maureen's concert, or talking about Maureen's concert, then going to Maureen's concert, and then partying after Maureen's concert. So, for a lot of Act 1, once the characters are all introduced, a lot of them just float around in the background or hang out in a group setting. Act 2 is spaced much further apart, taking place over the course of about a year, meaning there's a lot more opportunity for the characters to interact. That said, there's even less character interaction, despite there being more opportunity to do so. A lot of this is for narrative purposes. Angel starts dying, Joanne and Maureen stop talking, Roger pushes Mimi out of his life, Mark has a new job as an anchor. Then there's characters who are almost completely irrelevant for the whole show. I'm looking at you, Benny. In a way, I have to give some credit that Benny's introduced and you think he's going to be the villain, and then by the time the show's over, you realize there wasn't a villain at all. Rent is more complicated than that. But I can't be as kind when I sit through Act 1 the entire time Benny is portrayed as the villain, like some cartoonish rich snob. He sings a song or two trying to convince some of the other characters to listen to him, they immediately disregard his demands, and then he leaves, having contributed literally nothing to the plot. Then in the last scene of Act 1, he's dining with some fellow well-to-do people and all the bohemians start singing at him, I guess in confrontation. It's always portrayed very stupidly, in my opinion. And there's some minor characters here and there, like the main cast's parents, who call in every once in a while to check in on their kids, severely damaging the musical's narrative. In La Boheme, the characters were in Paris pursuing their dreams, dealing with poverty, and no one was there to save them. In Rent, every few scenes, Mark's mom or Maureen's dad or whoever will give their kid a call to check in on them, only to have the call seemingly go ignored. This, to me, defeats the purpose of having the main characters in a bohemian setting. The stars of Rent are living in squalor and struggling to make ends meet because they're implied to be blowing off their loved ones who keep reaching out and could fairly feasibly help them out in their struggle. It would be like if you were stranded on a deserted island with nothing but a ham radio, and you spent the entire time complaining and worrying about your fate, 
while completely ignoring the fact that the radio's going off and there's concerned Coast Guardsmen asking you about your whereabouts. It defeats the whole purpose. So we know that Mark and Roger, who spend the entire first act complaining about not being able to pay rent, have loving family members concerned about them, and that one of the characters, Maureen, comes from a filthy, stinking rich home with protective parents. I guess it harkens back to a similar problem I had in Heather's The Musical, which I talked about in The Worst of Broadway, where the adults and parents were always touted but never actually did anything. Except at least in that case, you could make an argument that Heathers did this to try and portray the parents as bumbling and inept, even when confronted with the problems their children were having. In Rent, the parents don't even know what the problems the children are facing, since the children are too edgy and independent to ever talk to them. I don't know, it all seems kind of self-defeating to me. I guess teenagers in their, you don't understand me mom phase would get a kick out of this. But these characters are supposed to be in their 20s, so I don't buy it from a story perspective. Now, the reason I haven't touched upon the characters as characters is because, frankly, I really don't care much about them. Benny is the stereotypical rich snob. Angel likes to have fun. Collins likes spending time with Angel and doesn't like it when his friends fight. Roger and Mimi fight. Maureen is controlling and self-absorbed, and Joanne feels stressed about that. They also fight. Mark is there, too. But pushing aside the fairly mediocre bunch of characters, I want to talk a little bit about the philosophy that I brought up last time I talked about Rent. I previously called Rent a nihilistic musical because I drew a line from nihilism to bohemianism and from bohemianism to hedonism. I do think nihilism and hedonism are strongly connected, as nihilism teaches as its golden rule, life sucks, then you die. And hedonism pretty much means do whatever you want to do as long as it gives you pleasure, and do that as much as possible. The line connecting the two is clear. If life sucks and there's nothing after it, might as well enjoy all of Earth's pleasures to the absolute fullest. But where exactly does bohemianism fit in all this? I've established already that as poor artsy artisans who like to spend their time on the dirty streets of Alphabet City, the supporting cast of Rent is bohemian. However, since bohemianism as a term has been redefined and commandeered by everyone, from the legitimately impoverished artisans of Paris to the hippies of Woodstock, it can be tricky to define what kind of bohemianism Larson is trying to depict in Rent. Fortunately, there's a whole song about it, La Vie Bohème, one of the clearest wink-wink-nudge-nudge references to La Bohème in the entire musical, lists all of the parts of the bohemian lifestyle that the main cast likes, after Benny ruthlessly insults the lifestyle as dead. Commonly lauded as one of the greatest songs in the whole musical, don't worry, we'll get to the music, La Vie Bohème serves as what I can only assume is the definition of bohemianism our plucky protagonists are attempting to live by. It's some sort of weird mishmashed amalgamation of hating the man, sexual gratification, and political liberalism. Among the tenets of La Vie Bohème are, children, close your ears, dildos, masturbation, sadomasochism, and sodomy. Their words, not mine. Left-leaning political activists and figures such as Susan Sontag and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, ignoring responsibilities, and, and I quote, hating dear old mom and dad. I don't want to come off like I'm some sort of stern boomer or something, but it is worth noting, again, that these characters are not teenagers. They are supposedly adults. And the concept that they live their entire lives around boils down to little more than listening to alternative music, having sex, and flipping off the man. Jeez, the only way this could have been less self-aware is if Larson had Mark and Roger living in Benny's basement instead of the flat at the top of the building. Now, Rent isn't at its core nihilistic. It's a fairly uplifting tale about the love friends should have for one another. And the ending is even edited from La Boheme to have Mimi survive in the last few minutes of the show. But the line between Rent and Hedonism isn't that hard to draw, considering there's a gigantic, show-stopping musical number about it. Whether you can as easily draw the line between Hedonism and Nihilism is up to you. I guess it's worth noting that the Bohemians also shout out Buddha. Buddha's very much not nihilistic, but... 
That is probably more than likely due to the philosophical ideas of Buddhism and not actually the spiritual beliefs of Buddhism. Treat everyone with kindness because life sucks and then you die. <laughs> that said, I do stand by my original point. The running thread of the AIDS crisis provides a good setting and some of the musical's best moments. Mimi's quote-unquote death scene, the AIDS support group meeting, it's all really good stuff. But then the show will throw one of its dog crap musical numbers at you and the effect gets ruined. Not always, of course. There are some slightly above-average songs in Rent. The Christmas Bells melody is a real earworm. Light My Candle is kind of cute. And No Day But Today is a powerful ballad that sums up the whole existence of the show. I do feel bad saying this since Larson put so much effort into the rest of the music of the show, but I really don't have much nice to say about most of it. <laughs> the show's staples Seasons of Love and One Song Glory are just okay to me, as are Your Eyes and Santa Fe. Just Okay, not bad to listen to, but I would never go out of my way to listen to them. I already talked about La Vie Boheme, a stupid song that goes on for like eight minutes. But there are some other awful listening experiences. You'll see. Feels like it was written purely out of complaints that Benny was a completely worthless character. <laughs> so they just throw a song in there for him to sing, and then he walks off stage. Today for You is a mind-numbingly stupid song in which Angel sings for three minutes about killing a dog and making bank for it. Tango Maureen exists as a hint of the complicated relationship between Mark and Maureen in comparison to the complicated relationship between Joanne and Maureen, but since the show stops exploring Mark and Maureen immediately after this, it's pretty much a worthless song. Contact is a song where the characters just have sex. That's the point of the number. Fantastic. Awesome. Very necessary. And then you've got Over the Moon, which I almost didn't even want to consider a musical number. This is Maureen's big concert, so artsy it would make Andy Warhol shed a tear because... Half of it is spoken through, it's full of gibberish and allegories, and the whole thing feels like a slam poetry reading, which makes sense because when I listen to it, I enjoy myself about as much as I would if I was at a slam poetry reading. I think Larson kind of missed the point when he was writing a lot of this show. I'm no opera fan, I, I know it sounds like I've been tooting the horn of La Boheme for this whole episode, but I'm just trying to provide context. That said, part of the point of La Boheme was to focus on struggling artists, singers, and actors who felt their crafts were ignored. Instead, Rent gives us community organizers and strippers. With Rent, Larson tries to marry true bohemianism with the obscenity, vulgarity, sexual deviancy, promiscuity, and hedonism of certain parts of America at the end of the millennium. Haha, <laughs> a little Rent joke for you there. And I don't think it blends together at all. So here's my thoughts on Rent. Fully researched, fully realized. It's a decent concept, modernizing a classic opera. Some of the ideas are there, including the theme of poverty and disease in Alphabet City but it's headlined by such bland, unlikable hedonists, crazy for the sake of being crazy, coupled that with confusing morals and a lackluster soundtrack, and I still very much dislike Rent. Hopefully I've done a better job explaining why. I'm Matt, and this has been another episode of Geeks Crossing. Do you like Rent? Want to let me know how mad you are at me for dissing one of Broadway's most famous shows? Or do you hate Rent and want to thank me for taking this overhyped show to justice? Either way, join our Discord and let me know. Link is in the description of this episode, as always, along with a link to our Instagram, at Geeks Crossing. Be sure to tell your friends and families about us, especially the theater fans in your life. Show some love to Keith and Nick at Nuclear Bacons and CryptoLock Gaming on Twitch, and continue to support us wherever you're listening to us right now, whether that be on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Audible, or Amazon Music. I'm Matt, and I don't own emotion. I rent. I <laughs> rent.